Dang, this ain't the first time you thought it up with that, huh? <laughs> Got her just flowed out. Like, oh, listen, you've been on this for a minute. That's what I'm on. So five years from now, um, I'll have one of the leading softwares when it comes to financial literacy and credit education. I love it. Do you specifically target black people? No. No? It's just that's just people who relate to me the most yeah. right now. Gotcha. Gotcha. They like this way. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Well, yeah. well, I I, I want to say uh, thank you, man, and please let the people know how they can get in touch with you at him five hundred on Instagram. So follow me on Instagram at him five hundred. That's the easiest way to contact me. Uh, stay in touch. I shoot DMs back. You get voice memos. You might get a video. Um, just real connected with everybody. DMs is always close to empty to where they, I keep them open. So you reply to all your DMs? For the most part, yes. I bro, I, I was I did it for a while and then I just got I got so backed up. Yeah. And now I can't catch up. So I'm I'm you know what? I'm just gonna sit down this week and I'm gonna go through all it's probably like a thousand Just months. delete all of those and start fresh. And then stay on top of it. And who would have thought of that? That's crazy. Like, you yo, this has been something that's been bothering me for like three months now. Yeah. He's no. like, oh, delete them. Start over. Thank you. Yeah, because you're going to check them. <laughs> They've been unread for two weeks. The message doesn't even matter anymore. Delete the story. It's story oh. replies. And it's, it's, you'll get a whole bunch of likes. And delete it and restart over. That is so amazing. First, okay, thank you. All right, I appreciate yeah, you, you just gave me a bar. You just yeah. gave me a bar. That was worth the price of admission. All right, cool. I want you to leave us with um, something that the people can uh, take with them and hold on to for the rest of this year, for the rest of next year. Um, just leave us with a closing note. With a closing note? I got it. Before you get there, before you get there, give me a formula. I like your formulas. You have like the way you teach. Okay. Give me a formula and then we'll close. A formula. Um, I'm gonna give you guys a formula on something that everybody needs and that's how to clean your credit. Um, that's one of the things I don't believe in charging for myself. I believe in if I get on a platform, the relationships I've been able to build with people like you, that I should be able to give our community that for free. Mm -hmm. So I tell people this is that the reason why you can't get a lot of the negative items removed from your credit report is because there's a company called SageStream, there's a company called LexisNexis, there's a company called CoreLogix, there's a company called ARS, and there's a company called Innovis. Those are secondary data furnishing companies. Those companies house the information that verifies the negative information on your credit report that helps match the collection agency's information, your foreclosures, your repossessions. They match those, that information with your secondary data furnishing companies. If you opt out and suppress these five furnishing companies, it will enhance your deletions by 60%. When you do a, a dispute method, you have to understand as well is that only way you can remove a negative item if it's inaccurate or if it's unverifiable. We cause inaccuracies by removing 
these, I mean, unverifiable by removing the secondary data furnishers. That causes it to be unverifiable because this is where they verify your data. So we opt out of those. Then we make things unverifiable, meaning look at the names and addresses, any misspelled names, any wrong addresses on your credit report are most likely tied to negative accounts or accounts in your credit report. Remove them, you should only have one. Boom, you can do that over the phone. You never send a dispute letter to remove addresses and um, misspelled names. You do it over the phone. Now, you've caused inaccuracies and you help make things um, inaccurate and help cause the negative items to be unverifiable just by opting out and suppressing those. So now when you do a dispute, I tell people use a 609 letter, find a template, make it sound like it's personal. Don't just use it cut and paste. Take some of the words out, make it sound personal, make it sound like it's coming from first person, you're talking to the credit bureau. Then what do you do? You send your disputes in. That's one way to get negative items removed. Biggest bars, most people don't know there's a company called Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, CFPB.gov. That's the government regulation site that governs the credit bureaus. The credit bureaus are private companies. So TransUnion, Experian, and Equifax are privately owned. Well, CFPB controls them. Well, if you don't want to have to, if you go through and you suppress the secondary agencies and you make things unverifiable and inaccurate, and it still gets, it comes back and the company says, oh, that. I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. If you're found guilty at trial in Nevada, you can ask the judge to hold a do-over if the original trial was unfair. This is a totally different process from an appeal, which is where you ask a higher court to review the lower court's decision. Now, judges rarely grant a hearing for a new trial, but it can happen. Five common reasons to justify a new trial are, one, there is newly discovered evidence that shows that the defendant may be innocent. Two, the judge made a major mistake, perhaps by misdirecting the jury. Three, the prosecutors or jury engaged in misconduct that prejudiced the defendant. Four, the defendant's attorneys were not competent. This is called ineffective assistance of counsel. And five, the evidence was insufficient to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Under NRS 176.515, defendants typically have only seven days after the guilty verdict to file a motion for a new trial. But if there is newly discovered evidence, the motion may be made within two years after the guilty verdict. Also, there is no time limit to ask for a new trial for a defendant convicted of a Category A or B felony who gets a genetic marker analysis that suggests they may be innocent. If you need a criminal defense attorney, call my legal team for a free consultation at 702-DEFENSE. Our experienced lawyers at the Las Vegas Defense Group 
We'll do everything we can to achieve the best resolution possible in your case. Yes, I signed those documents, blah, blah, blah. They don't actually charge him for anything. What ends up happening is a few months later, he fails a urine test, several urine tests, and they pull his probation and he goes back to jail for 30 months on a probation violation. But he probably wouldn't have gotten the 30 months did they not already know he was involved in another scam. Does that make sense? Like, mm -hmm. I can't say, oh, it was just a probation violation because they knew he had he was involved in another in a in a scam, so they hit him pretty hard for for a, a dirty urine. So those two people are the only people that ended up going to trial. Everybody else are going to prison. Everyone else, um, had basically um, skated. They were never, never grabbed, never indicted, or they were indicted, but they were never prosecuted. Many times the police obtain a search warrant by uh, taking evidence uh, that they uh, got from an informant to the judge. And they have to show the judge that that informant was reliable. And of course they're going to tell the judge, oh yes, this is a reliable informant. Uh, uh, we have a lot of confidence in him. But we're not going to take the police for their word at that. We're going to go back and we're going to examine the reliability of that informant ourselves. Many times we find the informant is a junkie. The informant is a drug addict. The informant has provided unreliable information before. Or the police made some special deal with the informant to make accusations against our client in return for getting a break on their case. If we can show that the informant was unreliable, that the information was uncorroborated, that it was not plausible that the informant provided, then many times we can get the search warrant quashed, we can force the police to, to divulge the identity of the informant, and if we can do that, quite often we can get the evidence thrown out of court and the case dismissed had like a long way to go before you reached your peak. Oh yeah, yeah. Well I had no clientele. You okay. Know, I had no clientele. And um it, it took a while. It took maybe six months to build to build trust in the community and to build clientele. So thousands of these credit cards, you're literally taking these little holograms and you're physically like placing them on each of these credit each cards one. with your hands, each like one. hand by hand. Yeah, each one. Each credit card, each shit, each card's dude. handmade. How long does that take? How long does it take to do one card? Oh, I had it down. I could, I could print one card in less than five minutes. I could print I could everything. Print, print I it. Could, stick everything onto it. Yeah. Well, yeah. See, I would already have all the. I would already have all the the templates lined up in Photoshop. Okay. Like ready to go. All my windows open. Bomb, 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 bomb. You know what I mean? And then I would load maybe like ten or fifteen cards in the printer, mm -hmm. and I would be like, okay. Print in sequence. Print one. Print two. Print three. Print four. Print five. So then it would it would run out all the cards. Print them front and back. You know okay. what I mean? It would put the put all. And the, the only thing I really had to do myself was emboss and do the hologram. So I would have to physically place the hologram myself and use a heat press to adhere it to the plastic. 
Mm-hmm. And then I would have to, to to manually emboss the card myself. And this is before I got the auto embosser, where I could just throw them in and do a batch, and it would you know run a fifty or hundred at a time. Damn. Yeah. So when I got down, when I got really efficient at it, I could maybe do a hundred cards in an hour. About an hour, I could print hologram and emboss about a hundred. So cards. you're making close to a hundred, a thousand cards in a day. Yeah, easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I'm cranking away, but then you know sometimes you have problems. Mm-hmm. The printer starts gets too hot and starts fucking melting cards and printing mm-hmm. shit sideways. You know, so you've yeah. always got little issues, right? Yeah, like that you got to deal with. But yeah, I could do a thousand cards in a day. What's the most cards day? that you did in a day? You think that I've manufactured in one day? Mm-hmm. I think I've done about eight hundred, six between six and eight hundred in wow. one day. You know, on a good day, if everything mm-hmm. was going right and I had mm-hmm. all my equipment operating mm-hmm. properly. Yeah. Okay, so how did you start getting this, getting this out there on on online or on these black market on these uh, um, on the dark web and start getting customers to buy shitloads of them? Yeah. So, so the initially the first uh, Carter forum that I was on, I went ahead and I just made my first post. Here I am, new vendor. Right. Um, here's my product. You know, you post pictures. It's like a whole, well, it was like a whole thing, not anymore. And then, you know, I would get maybe like one or two orders a month, mm-hmm. you know. And then once those orders came in and like people started leaving positive feedback, it just kind of snowballed after that. And then I remember the day, because I would only get maybe one or two orders, but I remember the day I woke up and I checked, I think I checked one of my emails and I had 15 or 20 20 orders waiting for me and I couldn't believe it. How much per, how much is $1000. One order is $1000. Yeah. For how many cards? Uh 100. 100 cards. Yeah, it's $20 a card, 100 cards, two drivers or you get I'd make IDs for you however many you wanted. And then I would do I think it was like 100 cards embossed, everything encoded, numbers and IDs and IDs. Yeah. Holy shit. But I wouldn't make a hundred IDs. Obviously I'd make like two or three. Okay. You know, or whatever that, whatever they wanted. But it mean, you know, so there there was a cap on that. So the IDs have to obviously correspond with the credit cards. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because say you go to a store and you make a purchase, um, and it's over like three or $400. Uh, like a lot of stores, like people don't realize this, but a lot of stores, like say Best Buy, you go Mm -hmm. to Best Buy, if you make a purchase over $300, they ask physically ask for your card, mm. and they physically take your card, and they, they go on their POS machine. Now, their POS machine, the point-of-sale service machine, won't let them process the sale unless the four digits on the front of the card match what's actually encoded to the card. Mm. So it's like, a, it's like a security step. So what they do is they take the card, and they punch the numbers into the computer because you've already swiped it. So they're going to punch these numbers in. And if these numbers in the front of the card don't match what's being swiped, it's automatic fraud. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you have to have the corresponding plastic to match the to match the numbers. And you have to have the ID because they're going to ask for, for ID. Because A, I don't have the people's PIN number. So you're not processing it as debit. You always have to process it as credit, even though it's a debit card. Got it. So they have to have ID. When you process anything for credit, they always ask for ID, always, especially if it's a big purchase. Right. You know. Huh. 
Louis Vuitton, you go to Louis Vuitton and try and buy uh, a $2,000 handbag on a credit card, they're going to ask you for ID. Right, right. 1,000%. Yeah. You yeah. know, even if you even if you go in there looking the part, they're still mm-hmm. going to ask. They always ask for ID. Right. You know? So you have to have the ID to match the card. Everything mm-hmm. has the jive, the numbers. Okay. Everything has the to, to be coherent. Okay, so is there a minimum number of cards they had to buy for one order? So is the minimum a hundred card? Minimum 100? it was a thousand dollar minimum order. Okay, so it was a hundred cards. And the things that you'll talk about in the pleading topic are amendments. So remember earlier I said if you don't assert an affirmative defense in your answer, it's waived. Well, you might be able to fix that by amending your answer. We're going to look at that in the civil procedure course. Most of you should cover that. That's covered by Rule 15. I want to fix my complaint. Maybe someone files a motion in response to the complaint saying, there's not enough detail here. Well, can the plaintiff then say, well, then I'll just fix it. I'm going to file an amended complaint. Right? So there are rules that allow you to do amended complaints without the permission of the court. Sometimes you need the court's permission. That's the topic of amendments. There's advanced concepts in the amendment space where you may want to add things to the complaint after the statute of limitations has expired. That goes to this when. When do you have to bring a case? Usually there's a deadline. Sometimes it's two years after the incident. Sometimes it's three years, etc. What if you file a case right before the two-year deadline? Now you're going along in discovery and you find, uh-oh, I sued the wrong person. I was supposed to sue John, but I sued Mike. I want to file an amended complaint to substitute John. Can that relate back to before the two-year period? It can under certain circumstances. So this is something else that you'll talk about in Rule 15 coverage, which deals with amendments. A last piece of the pleadings topic, which we're dealing with here, is something called Rule 11. And this is a rule that imposes a requirement to be truthful in pleading. So obviously you can't just make stuff up. If you make things up in a complaint and the defendant calls you out on it, they can file a motion for sanctions under Rule 11. And that's punishment that the court will visit on the attorney and the parties and the law firm that's responsible for the violation. So you'll study what the requirements are of Rule 11 and the means that you have to use to get sanctions from the court to punish people who have violated it. Joinder is the next topic that's typically covered. And this deals with joinder of claims and joinder of parties. So I mentioned earlier a counterclaim up there. That's what we have in this initial uh, lawsuit. And I'll redraw it down here. So we have a plaintiff versus a defendant. This is our initial claim of $100,000. Now we have a counterclaim of $50,000. All right, well, what if the plaintiff wants to sue the defendant for something else besides this car accident? They may have another dispute that's unrelated to the car accident. And it's just a coincidence, but they have some sort of uh, breach of contract dispute. So, and let's say this is only for $50,000. So now you have multiple questions here. First, as always, is there jurisdiction over this $50,000 breach of contract claim, which has nothing to do with this? Now remember I said for supplemental jurisdiction, claims have to be related to each other. 
These claims are not related to each other. Does that mean there's no jurisdiction over that claim? No, it doesn't. Why not? It goes way back to something I mentioned at the beginning, aggregation. A plaintiff can add however many claims they have, related or unrelated to each other, to get to the jurisdictional amount in controversy. So this plaintiff can actually add 100 to 50 to get $150,000 in controversy. So even though it's unrelated and it's insufficient on its own through aggregation, it qualifies for diversity jurisdiction. So no jurisdictional problems there. The other question is, can they join this in this lawsuit? So they're not just a jurisdictional issue, joinder. What allows me to bring two completely unrelated claims in one case? They have nothing to do with each other. Not going to be the same witnesses, not the same evidence. Can you do this? The answer is yes, because the rules of civil procedure expressly provide for it. That's rule 18A. This is a rule that's rule 13B. If it's related, if it's 13A, 13B, if it's unrelated, you're going to learn all these things in civil procedure. So joinder covers claim joinder, counterclaims, then it can get even more complex. Let's put another plaintiff down here. So now we've got P1 and P2. This guy was from New York. We had Texas over here. Now we're going to put another New Yorker here. Now why would we have two plaintiffs? So this might be the driver of the car. This could be the passenger that was with the driver. She was injured too. Right? So can they bring a lawsuit together? Or do they have to split up? There's a rule that governs this. This is rule 20. So you're going to study this. So this person might have a claim here. What if their claim is only for $50,000? Well, that's too low. Can you add it? No. Maybe there's supplemental jurisdiction. You'll learn about that. What happens when it gets a little spicier and they start doing this? Alright? Now, we were friends. And that defendant understanding, I've got two other guys that feel the same way that we're going to hear today, and mutually respecting each other and the limits on that is important. When, when you, after you sentence an individual and they're t sentenced to the custody of the attorney general, they go into the prison system on rare occasions, they have an opportunity to come before you again for some type of resentencing, some issues. How does their behavior in prison, can that have some influence on your decision if you have the opportunity to reassess this candidate several years later? Those enormous considerations. Um, I see it all the time. Um, we've just gone through a rash of people who've been resentenced um, based on armed career offenders and other situations that come in front of us. If somebody's in federal prison, they've had no violations, um, that tells me they'll have no violations when they get out, which is what I want. My uh, fairy tale view of the world is that this, the sentence in the Bureau of Prisons is supposed to be the punishment aspect of it, and that supervised release is where we hopefully give people some skills 
and support it's a monitoring to make sure they generally follow the rules of society and so if you've not had any problems in prison my thought is you won't have any problems when you get out and so it allows me to take a risk it allows me to take a risk if you had no violations on supervised release to be removed from supervised release early maybe after a couple of years of doing everything positive I've seen letters where people have come, have spent a year pre-trial at some small county prison waiting to come, and they've developed a positive relationship with the guards, and have volunteered in the kitchen, and done positive things there, and the guards have greatly appreciated it, and not become a character reference, but just said, Steve has done everything we've asked him to, he's gotten up early, and he's worked in the kitchen, has been a positive influence on the other inmates. Well, that's pretty darn compelling. That means you can play by the rules. And, you, and you're going to get out. I mean, there's very few people that get life. You're going to get out, and you're most likely going to be back in front of the sentencing judge if there's ever a screw-up again. Um, and to have a clean record in prison uh, is an enormous positive star in your crown. Judge, you've been very gracious with your time and you've responded to all of our questions and I know that our audience will learn a great deal in listening from you. You're, you're telling the people exactly what we try to convey in prison professors that it's never too early and it's never too late to begin sowing seeds for a better life and I really want to thank you for spending the time this afternoon and sharing your wisdom with our audience. Mr. Santos, I, I appreciate you having me on. It's a, it's a distinct honor. I mean, this is one of those times that we as a society, this is us. This is we're governing ourselves. This is our democracy. Uh, the individuals that you're serving are citizens and uh, we can all, we can all improve and become better. And you're, an important part of that. So thank you for what you do, sir. Thank you and God bless. The most serious type of felony is a category A felony. And that would include first degree murder. It would include first degree kidnapping, sexual assault, production of child pornography amongst others. A category A felony subjects an individual to a maximum punishment, if it's first-degree murder, of death. Otherwise, Category A felonies are punished by a penalty of up to life in prison without the possibility of parole or life in prison with the possibility of parole. Nobody wants to find out that they have an outstanding warrant. And we get a lot of calls from people that have uh, gone to renew their license at the DMV, for example, and found out that they had a warrant. Uh, maybe they were arrested. Maybe they were just told about it. Uh, sometimes people get pulled over and an officer may write them a citation and not actually arrest them on the warrant, but inform them that they have a warrant. But whatever the facts and circumstances may be, it's never fun to find out that you have a warrant for your arrest. 
uh, depending on what type of warrant it is, we may be able to go into court for you and have the court quash the warrant. Uh, quashing the warrant basically means uh, when you appear, either personally or through counsel, the court once again has jurisdiction over you. They no longer have to utilize the warrant to arrest you and bring you before the court. When you voluntary, voluntarily appear before the court, there's a pretty good chance that the court will quash the warrant, allow you to remain out of custody until you resolve your legal matter. Uh, a warrant can lie for uh, a felony charge, a misdemeanor charge, or even a traffic ticket. And it's very important to clear up your warrants because obviously uh, nobody wants to go to jail, especially unexpectedly. So um, if you have a warrant, um, call 702 Defense. Uh, prison system and about post-conviction opportunities. And uh, as you can see, he's, he's very open and transparent and happy to share with you what he's learned. Thank you. Thank you, too. Las Vegas Casino Security are not the police. They may only perform citizen's arrests, which every person has the right to do if they witness criminal activity or believe a felony has been committed. If a casino security guard arrests you, remember to maintain your right to remain silent. And depending on the situation, your attorney may be able to show the prosecutor that the casino security performed an illegal citizen's arrest and that any charges against you should be dismissed. However, there is one situation where casino security is legally allowed to take casino patrons to the fabled back room for questioning. That's for allegedly cheating while gambling. Under NRS 465.101, Casino security may detain a person for a reasonable length of time and question him or her if they have probable cause to believe that that person was cheating during gambling. During this time, casino security has no obligation to give patrons Miranda warnings and remind them of their right to remain silent. However, patrons should absolutely remain tight-lipped and give up no information other than their name. Then if the police arrive, the patron should continue to stay silent and speak only to their lawyer. So if you've been arrested by security at a Las Vegas casino, call the Las Vegas Defense Group at 702 Defense, and we'll talk about ways to get your charges reduced or dismissed. And in some cases, we may even be able to sue the security guard or hotel for the damages that they've caused. They just don't, they're laborers and we're gonna cash some of their checks. And he goes, okay, that makes sense. Leaves, comes back. Finally comes back and I said, hey, what's going on? You know, and he says, listen, he said, uh, I just, we're just doing a series of checks on to verify things. And I go, okay. And he says, uh, I said, well, what are you doing? He goes, well, we're trying to, he said, we, it turns out that this check was issued uh, by, on, a, on a house owned by a Michael Shanahan. And I was like, right, right. And he goes, he said, right, so we're just trying to verify uh, that Michael Shanahan issued the check, that's all. Well, there's a real Michael Shanahan. 
And I'm thinking, oh my God, <laughs> well, that's not good. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So he leaves, Becky calls, what's going on? They're trying to call Michael Shanahan. She's like, get out of the bank. And I'm like, I can't, this guy's got my shit. I leave the bank for sure, they're calling the cops. I have to wait. Hang up the phone. A minute later, my phone rings. I look at it. I don't recognize the number. I pick it up and I go, hello. And there's a woman like, hi, this is Kimberly from SunTrust Bank. Is this Michael Shanahan? I'm like, yes, it is. And she goes, hi, uh, we have someone here at the bank trying to cash a cashier's check uh, that was drawn on your, your on your uh, from the title company. And I'm like, okay. And they said, uh, what was, do you, you know, who was the, how much was the amount for us? Yeah, that was Scott Cugno. It was 30, about $29,000 even, I think. And she says, that's right. Mr. Thank you very much, Mr. Shannon. I said, hey, how did you get my number? Because if you called information, you would have got his real number. And, and I go, how'd you get my number? Oh, we called the title company. They looked on the application that I had filled out, and I'd used the cell number. And they said, we just got it off of there. I hope it's okay. No problem. No problem. Okay, thank you. Boom. Hang up the phone. Five minutes later, still, the guy comes out with some woman, counts out the money to me, gives me the money. I stand up, and he says, Mr. Cugno, I would like to um, say that I feel very uncomfortable about this transaction. And I said, well, what is it exactly? And he goes, you know, I can't put my finger on it. And I said, well, I'm, it'll come to you. <laughs> and I walk off. Listen, I was terrified. Fucking terrified. I like to think that when the Secret Service showed up, you know, five, six days later, a week later, he realized 